to have a Monday night Bible study for the kids who'd be going to Camp Rete, but of course the camp was canceled. But uh, Charlie Clough began teaching, I believe it was uh, last week, and he has, what, the 22nd, or is that this week? That was this week. He started last night. He's got two more Monday nights to go. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Good verses to memorize now with all of the chaos and disorder that we see going on around us. Today I had an interesting opportunity to go to the um, Houston City Council. Actually, we did it via uh, Zoom. It wasn't Zoom, but it was something like that. It was an online meeting format. I had been invited to give the uh, invocation. It's a rather interesting opportunity. The council meeting began with an announcement from the mayor that he was making a proclamation about Gay Pride Month this month and the Gay Pride Parade and several other things related to that and then several other uh, council members also pitched in, talked about how wonderful that was and then, of course, they had to chip in and compare it to the uh, Civil Rights Movement and Black Lives Matter and a number of other um, you know, a lot of virtue signaling and self-righteousness was manifested before I got my opportunity to pray. So that was, uh, if we'd been in the city council, I think it might have surprised God that he would have heard somebody actually praying in fellowship from that location. But hopefully we know that God's word will not go forth void and that God will use that uh, to encourage someone. Before we begin tonight, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. We need to confess sin if necessary. We need to make sure that we are walking in fellowship and in preparation for our time in God's Word, and we need to continually be in prayer for our leaders, our president. We need to be in prayer for local officials. We need to be in prayer for state officials. There's so much going on, and you know what's going on, so I just want to encourage you to continue to be in prayer for all of these different situations. I mentioned on Sunday that uh, Jim Myers had commented that uh, uh, he was quite busy. There was a lot going on, but the um, the whole situation with Ukraine has been the quarantine's been extended to almost the end of July, and I re- read today that it looks like for at least a maybe a month or two until things calm down with relation to the virus here in the U.S., that Europe is thinking about blocking Americans from flying to Europe. So things just continue to get more and more interesting. So we need to be in prayer for all these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
My Father, we're thankful that in your omniscience you have declared the beginning and the end. You have a plan and things are going according to that plan. We do not know that plan, but we do know that things will deteriorate. Uh, if we are near the end times, as we suspect, we know that they will get and could get quite chaotic before even the rapture occurs. And so, Father, we pray for us that we might keep our focus on the mission, that we might not get distracted by the things that are going on around us, by the news, by all of the chaos, and that we might recognize that we have great stability because we are standing on the rock. And Father, we thank you for your uh, immutability, your faithfulness, the fact that your word is always true, and that no matter what may happen around us, no matter what uh, winds of chaos may blow our way, what adversity we face, we know that you are always present, always stable, always the rock upon which we may lean. And Father, we pray that that might always encourage us and that we might, uh, might keep our focus upon these eternal truths and not on the events that go swirling around us every day. We pray tonight as we study your word that we might come to understand the importance of grace, dealing graciously with enemies, dealing graciously with those with whom we disagree, dealing graciously with those who are hostile to us, and demonstrating your love and goodness even to those who hate it and reject it. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 15 as we pick up our study of uh, David's return back to uh, the what is called the Cisjordan, back to Israel and Jerusalem. And this is the process that he goes through. It's, it's very similar to the process when he, when he left, and he's being met by several people, and he has to uh, address several uh, different uh, circumstances and situations. And all through this, we demonstrate his grace to those who have opposed him, his grace to those who have been hostile to him, uh, the, his grace to those who have called him all kinds of names and yelled and screamed at him in the case of Shimei, throwing rocks and stones and all manner of things. And yet we see uh, David's uh, graciousness, but we also see its connection to righteousness and justice as we look carefully at the passage, the episode, and how it works itself out eventually. So last time we started with looking at the beginning of the chapter, David's, uh, or excuse me, Joab's confrontation with David because he was having a, a meltdown, an emotional meltdown and pity party over the death of his son Absalom. And then we saw a summary of the debate over the restoration of David among the people in Israel and especially the tribes, which brings to our, our attention the fact that in Israel there, there are certain fault lines that in adversity become apparent. And these fault lines uh, are between the tribes. You have the ten tribes that are usually referred to as the tribes of the north, the tribes of uh, uh, later the kingdom of Israel, and you have the, uh, they're, they're referred to as uh, the tribes of Joseph, uh, uh, who was the father of Menasheh, Manasseh, and Ephraim, Ephraim, and often the north is also just called Ephraim. 
So all of that refers to those ten tribes. And then the southern two tribes are really Benjamin and Judah, but Benjamin and Judah are at odds at times because Benjamin is the tribe of Saul, the first king uh, that God had uh, appointed as a king of Israel, and David is from the tribe of Judah. So those, those are some of the fault lines. As David comes back, he is reorganizing his administration, his return, preparing for different things. He sent uh, Zadok and Abiathar ahead to negotiate his return with the tribe of Judah in the south. And we saw that as part of his reconciliation with those who are sided with Absalom, that he's going to appoint his nephew Amasa as the new commander-in-chief in place of Joab, which is not going to make Joab very happy at all. And then we see this restoration with Judah as he returns, and he is about to across the Jordan. Now, it appears from verse 15, when we look at it, uh, that uh, then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king to escort the king across the Jordan. And it, it, it seems, uh, especially if you read through some commentaries, there's some uncertainty as when... when um, when David actually crosses the Jordan. And if you look carefully when you get down to verse 40, now the king went on to Gilgal and Kimham went on with him and all the people of Judah escorted the king on behalf of the people of Israel. This is when he actually crosses over the Jordan. And it is not before then. So apparently what you have is these these groups come and they cross the Jordan and have all of this action takes place on the east side of the Jordan, on the Transjordan, uh, before David actually crosses back over. And the main event that we're going to look at uh, is, relates to Shemai and Zeba, verses 17 and 18. They are introduced and then we see the development of what happens there uh, beginning in uh, verses uh, 18, the second part of 18, 18b to 23, the encounter with Shimei, the son of Gera, who had so verbally abused him and actually thrown stones at him and his men. And then fifth, Mephibosheth and Ziba. And the difficulty there, we discuss some of Shimei the last time. I'll add a few things tonight. And then we'll look at Mephibosheth and Ziba. And then we'll look at the third uh, encounter with Barzillai the Gileadite. That's about as far as we'll get tonight. And then uh, next time we'll begin with the seventh and eighth points. David's moves to Gilgal with the tribal divisions. And then he's going to uh, face a real SOB in Sheba, the son of Bikri. Now that could stand for son of Bikri or it could stand of son of Belial. Both are true. Okay, so I just thought I'd get everybody's attention there. Now that you're awake, we'll uh, start looking at what happens around verses 14 and 15. So David talks to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the men of Judah, verse 14. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all, all your servants. So... The king then returns. Now, he has been in Mahanaim, and he returns, and in verse 15, we're told he came to the Jordan 
And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. Now here we have a map to discover where Gilgal is located. Last time I pointed up just generally in this area, and the reason is that there's a lot of confusion about just exactly where Gilgal is located. Uh, The most significant passage to describe the location of Gilgal is found in Joshua 4.19. Now the people came up from the Jordan. This is when the Israelites cross the Jordan. God holds back the waters. They cross on dry land just as they cross the Red Sea. They cross over and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And then verse 20 says, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Now these weren't small stones. These were not like softball-sized stones. These, these were going to be huge, huge, heavy, 20, 30, 40-pound uh, rocks that they would use to build a rock cairn monument of their entry into the promised land. So let me suggest they didn't carry them very far. And that this passage indicates that the location of Gilgal is here in the uh, plains of the Jordan uh, between Jericho and the fords of the Jericho somewhere in this general, uh, general location. Nobody is exactly sure where it was located, but this is... Uh, the primary place we think of as Gilgal. However, there were four other places that were also named Gilgal. Deuteronomy 11.30 locates uh, Ebal and Gerizim, quote, over against Gilgal, unquote. And so Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are up here on the west side of Shechem, or Shechem, and so this would indicate that there's a place, there was an ancient place there that was also called, called uh, Gilgal. There's another place uh, that is mentioned in the episodes of, of uh, Elijah and Elisha that is near Bethel. Now, Bethel is not on this map, but Bethel is located somewhere where, around where my pointer is between Gibeah, about halfway between Gibeah and Shechem, you have uh, Bethel. And in 2 Kings 2.1 and 2 Kings 4.38, there is a uh, mention of a Gilgal in that location. Then there's a border city of Judah mentioned in Joshua 15.17 that's on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So that's another Gilgal along with the one that, um, that I have mentioned. So its exact location is uncertain. I forgot I have this slide here. So these are the, um, oh, this, these are references here, excuse me, these are references here to its significance in Samuel. It is a significant location. What happens at Gilgal in Joshua uh, Uh, 4, 19, and 20, and in following in chapter 5 is the episode where uh, as the Israelites came across the Jordan and they camp here, 
they have what I referred to last time as a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, that's a nice term for what happens here, but it wasn't a pleasant location because all of the men, remember all of the men that came out of, out of Egypt had been circumcised at Mount Sinai. All of the adult men over the age of 20. And that was their, you know, the, the, it is a part of the Mosaic Covenant, but it's really the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. But it is definitely recognized and mandated for all Jewish males in the, in the Mosaic Covenant. Well, that generation, everyone 20 and above, has died off by the time they crossed the Jordan to come into the land because of the 40 years of discipline. And while they were in discipline, while they were in the wilderness for those 40 years, there were no uh, bris ceremonies. Now, the modern Hebrew word or uh, uh, is the word bris. Often when you get into uh, Eastern European Jewry, they drop a final T on a word and pronounce it as an S. For example, Shabbat is Shabbos and other words like that. So berit, which is the Hebrew word for covenant, gets shortened to bris. Okay, so this is uh, what that term refers to. The bris is the ceremony on the eighth day when a uh, Jewish male baby is circumcised. So the bris ceremony is now going to be performed at Gilgal for all of the adult males in all of the males in Israel. So that ceremony is there, and this is a commitment ceremony by this generation that they are going to obey the law and that they are going to follow God and they are going to be committed to God. And that generation, we know, was very successful because they stayed true to the law. It was their children and then their grandchildren that compromised with the Canaanites and eventually led the people back into, uh, back into idolatry, and into compromise with paganism. And that's the whole story uh, of the book of Judges. But in Samuel, there is an, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, several things happen at Gilgal. And this indicates how God continuously is bringing the people back to the same location because of its historic significance. And its historic significance is because of what happened there doctrinally. That's one of the things I try to teach when I go to uh, go to Israel. We take tour groups there. There are a lot of books that you can get. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a wonderful book out that goes through every single place in the in the Holy Land, in Israel, in the West Bank, in Samaria, every place mentioned in the Bible, and it gives you a lot of scriptural information. It gives you a lot of geographical information. Gives you archaeological information. And that is true for a lot of different tour books. But what I've tried to do and the one that I've been working on ever since I started taking tour groups over there is to show that at each of these locations, something significant happened in the Bible that teaches something about God, something about his relationship to his people. It's all tied to some doctrinal principle. It's not just great because it's historical or something happened there for the Jews, but it's the doctrine that happened there. And so Gilgal is important because of what happens there when they cross into the land. It's not important for its location. It's not important because of these other things that happen there. It's important because it is 
a physical reminder of the nation's recommitment to the Mosaic law when they entered the land that God had promised to them. So we see these uh, recurrences of Gilgal in uh, 1 Samuel 10, 8. Samuel instructed Saul to wait for him at Gilgal for seven days, and then they anointed Saul to be king at Gilgal. He didn't just pick a location out of thin air. He picked it because this was the site of the renewal ceremony from Joshua chapter 5. In 1 Samuel 13, 4, uh, Saul summons the Israelites to Gilgal after his victory over the, over the Philistines. And they're going to, uh, again, it's, it's an imitation, but it's a reminder for the nation. God, God's given them the victory over the Philistines, and God is going to continue to give them victory, hopefully, uh, apart from the fact that Saul was disobedient. Uh, this was the location where Saul... Uh, offered a presumptuous sacrifice at Gilgal, waiting for Samuel to arrive. And as a result of that, Samuel foretells the decline of Saul's kingdom. And then in 1 Samuel 15, that's where Samuel rebukes Saul because he disobeyed God uh, by sparing Agag. So each of these instances are all related to remind us that this is where the nation recommitted itself uh, at Gilgal when they entered into the land to be obedient to the law. And so these episodes in the life of Saul that took place there show his that he was initially obedient to God, but then he was disobedient to God and uh, God took the kingship uh, away from his house and eventually took Saul's life in the sin and to death at the end of the book of, of Samuel. Now, a third thing that we see under this whole category of David's reorganization and extension of peace, and a fourth thing that we see there is Shema and Ziba coming out to meet him. And this we talked about last time. It just briefly mentioned as sort of a topical sentence that Ziba, uh, who is the servant of the house of Saul, comes to meet him. Now, remember, Ziba was the servant of Mephibosheth, who is the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan, and that he had been dropped when he was an infant and he was crippled. And so he could not get around. And so Ziva was the steward, the head of his household. But he was a very wealthy man. And it wasn't just Ziva coming. He has with him a thousand men of, of Benjamin. So this is an opportunity for David to mend fences with the Benjamites. And that is what he does here. He is showing grace to them because many of them had followed Absalom. And if you remember... Uh, Ziva is also not exactly the most friendly with David or with his people, and he's somewhat duplicitous, and that comes out more and more as we go through uh, this episode with him. So he comes out, he brings his sons, his servants, and they go over the Jordan before the king. So that means they're crossing over the Jordan to meet David on the east side of the Jordan. And at this point, we're told in the second half of verse 18 that Shemai, the son of Gera, crosses over 
That's described in, let me see. Uh, that's described in the first half of 18. Shimei crosses over and he falls down before the king uh, when he had crossed the Jordan. Now, it's funny how you look at translations because there are some translations that will translate this uh, after he had crossed the Jordan, thinking that he refers to David. Then there are others who understand it a little more correctly, and they will translate it before he had crossed the Jordan, thinking that it re- the, again, thinking that he refers to, da- to uh, David. But the he refers to Shemai. Shemai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king after he, Shemai, had crossed the Jordan. David is still on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, Shemai comes, he crosses the Jordan, and then, uh, you know, all wet from uh, crossing the Jordan, uh, he comes and bows down uh, before the king. And he is repentant. And I say that as to include both ideas of he has uh, admitting his sin to David, his disobedience to David, as well as the fact that he appears at this point uh, to be uh, remorseful. He is remorseful. Maybe he is just simply remorseful because he doesn't want to experience David's uh, wrath and anger and be punished for uh, the act of being a traitor, or maybe he has actually has a deeper change of mind. Uh, that is for us to discover as we go through the story of, of Shimei. He says to the king in verse 19, Do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. Now this phrase, impute iniquity to me, is important. The word impute means to add up or to count something or account something to somebody to credit it to their account. It's the same word used in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, or Abraham, actually Abraham had already believed God, and God had imputed it to him as righteousness, had credited that righteousness to his account. That's the idea, it's the, the word that is used in the Hebrew for imputation. And so there in Genesis fifteen six, it has to do with the imputation or crediting of God's righteousness to Abraham for his faith. Here it has to do with crediting or accounting uh, sin. Actually, the Hebrew word here is the Hebrew word avon, translated iniquity. And basically what he is saying is, don't let my Lord count me as guilty. Don't consider me guilty or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord the King left Jerusalem. He is asking him to forget it and to wipe the slate clean and not to count it or credit it to his account and punish him. In verse 20, he states what he has done. He says, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. I've made this point several times in in the last year. Uh, a while back, I talked to someone who had 
been a not been a believer for very long and pretty much grew up in a in a uh, typical lifestyle of a lot of teenagers and young people today and just to get a fee- feedback from somebody who hasn't spent their life in church uh, talking about how unbelievers hear certain words and the trouble with most unbelievers today is they think of sin as some sort of extreme category uh, we've had this problem in, um, throughout American history, at least since the early, ni- uh, early 1800s, early 19th century, where sin in America under the somewhat superficial legalism of evangelicalism has become identified with the uh, s- sort of social sins of the day. You know, the huge sins of the 19th century uh, revolved around slavery, uh, uh, the uh, uh, temperance movement was a reaction to the abuse of alcohol, so that was a great sin. Another great sin was um, had to do with the abuse of workers and labor, and then there were other issues related to women's rights and the suffrage movement, and all of these things were worked out socially in American history. And it was all because of the theological foundation that was laid in the Second Great Awakening, primarily by the legalism of people like George Finney and many, many others who didn't really believe in total depravity, believed man was perfectible and man could work his way to heaven. And if man was perfectible, then society was perfectible and the nation was perfectible. And if society is perfectible, we have to identify the big social sins And if we can just cleanse ourselves of these social sins, then we can bring in a utopia. And that pretty much has described American social history for the last 200 years, and it's created nothing but problems because it's based on pure arrogance and false assumptions and the distortions of legalism and the misinterpretations of the Bible. One of the really sad things that came out today and I'll talk about this and read from it in more detail on Thursday night, but, you know, in my Thursday night study where we're talking about uh, how should we then vote, I began by talking about a worldview. And so the first uh, five or six lessons now have all dealt with this issue of worldview and coming up on the issue the last couple of weeks talking about ethics. Ethics are so important because ethics is where you talk about righteousness and justice, and these are the big buzzwords today in terms of social justice and and this this kind of a thing is going on. And so to and I quoted from a 2019 uh, worldview survey, which showed that fewer than 20% of evangelicals have a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. Fewer than 16% of charismatics have a biblical worldview. And if we do not have a biblical worldview, this country will fall apart because it was, as John Adams and others noted, the Constitution was designed for a religious people and a moral people, and by that they meant, if you study their writings, they use religion as a synonym for Christian. And if there's no Christian thinking, then there will be no freedom and there will be no liberty, and uh, the Constitution will, and our form of government will, will fall apart. 
and we're witnessing some of the social consequences of that on the streets, streets right now. Well, today I received an email from the people who did that study uh, last year, and it came out for the 2020 study that 65% of Americans believe man is inherently good and perfectible. Think about that. That's why they're so attracted to utopic ideas. They're living in a fantasy world. They think man is basically good. And 48% of Christians think man is basically good. You cannot live on that basis, that man is inherently good. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? We cannot operate uh, in that way. And so... Uh, we have real problems in understanding what sin is. The current generation thinks sin might, is racism. They think sin is uh, spousal abuse or child abuse or sexual abuse or some, some sort of other uh, heinous activity, excluding, of course, anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jews because they're, they're an exception to everything. And so this is a major problem today, and they don't understand what sin is. And the Bible uses this word that was just an everyday word in their language. Sin, sin used to be an everyday word in our language, but with the advent of Christianity and the strength of Christianity over the last 400 years, it's really become more of a technical Christian word. The root meaning of the Hebrew word is just to miss a target, to miss a goal, to go out of bounds, it's a very simple word that you just made a mistake. You didn't live up to the standard. Instead of hitting the mark, you missed the mark. And that is what sin is. And everybody is a sinner, and everybody falls short of the mark, which is the standard of God's character and God's, God's protection. So here, that's what um, Shemai is saying. He says, I, your servant, know that I have sinned. I, I failed. I, I missed the mark. And so he comes at first of the house of Joseph, and that's the, uh, a reference to the northern kingdom, to go down to meet the Lord my king. And as I pointed out last time, Abishai comes up, and he's always quick to uh, condemn, and he's, uh, he wants to immediately uh, execute Shemai on the spot, just like he did before when Shemai came up and started uh, making accusations and calling David names and throwing rocks at everybody. And he asked permission to put him to death. Shall not Shemai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. And David then turns to him, and David wants to operate on grace. It's a great day. It's a celebration. Let's be kind to our enemies, love our enemies, welcome them back, and give them the opportunity to hang themselves again. That's the subtext. It's not in the Scripture but we see that from looking at the rest of the story. And so he makes this comment. He said, why, why do I have to put up with you sons of Zariah? They're his nephews. That you should be adversaries, and the word there is accuser, that you should be accusers for me today. They're accused, he is accusing uh, Shemai uh, in David's place. And so David says, shall he man be put to death today in Israel? no. For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? We're going to extend grace, and we are going to commute his sentence, 
and not hold it against him. Now, the basis for Abishai's statement comes from Exodus 22.28. Now, Exodus 22.28 does not have a specific penalty assigned to it. It is a statement, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, blasphemy was punishable in other parts of the law by stoning. By death, it was a death penalty offense. And so it is implied in this passage that one who cursed or showed disrespect for a ruler of the people uh, was worthy of a death penalty. Now, that ought to remind all of us that no matter what we think of any leader, we should show honor and respect for the position We should be obedient to the authority, even if they're idiots in the position. We have to show respect, and we have to treat them that way, and we can't um, be disrespectful. We ought not. We are called to a higher standard, and too often we chata, and we fall short of that standard, but we have to remember what the standard is. And this, this death penalty for cursing a ruler is referred to by a an interesting person in 1 Kings 21.10. Evil leaders often want to cloak their evil activities by quoting Scripture. That doesn't mean the Scripture is wrong. It just means they're using Scripture for their own purposes. And the person who is sp- speaking here in 1 Kings 21.10 is Jezebel. And she is uh, setting up a situation where she's framing somebody in 1 Kings uh, Kings 21.10 here. And so she says simply uh, to bear witness against him, against uh, Nabal, who's the owner of the vineyard, saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. She is quoting from Exodus 22.28. And so she's setting him up and framing him and said, then take him out and stone him that he may die. So it's clear that Abishai's statement is related to biblical biblical truth. So what I want to do is just tell us the rest of the story, because the rest of the story with Shimei takes place in in 1 Kings, rather, and I taught that some 10 years ago, Uh, So some of you probably remember that generally, but let's go back and just turn over a few pages to 1 Kings uh, chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter uh, 2, verse 8 and 9. In 1 Kings 2, 8 and 9, what is happening here is David is near death. David is giving instructions to Solomon as to what he needs to do to consolidate his power and secure the throne after David dies because he knows there's already a threat and challenge to his succession by his brother Adonijah, and uh, David knows that uh, that there will be others. And he says in verse 8, And see, you have with you Shammai the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. So what he recognizes is that Shemai is inherently a rebel. He's a troublemaker. He is 
uh, antagonistic to the authority of David and will be antagonistic to the authority of his uh, of his successor. And so he knows that he needs to deal with it, but because of the promise that David had made in um, in the passage we're studying in in Second uh, Samuel nineteen, that uh, that um, uh, David himself cannot deal with the problem, but Solomon will have to. He said, "Remember, he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword." Now, this reminds us of passages that the government does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is a metaphor for the power to take life. That power is delegated by God to the national entity, to a national government. And David goes on in verse 9, Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. See, over in Second uh, uh, Samuel 19, Shammai said what? Don't account me or don't count guilt to me. But now David is reminding Saul, don't hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Now there's another use of blood, as we talked about in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, the blood of Christ, that this phrase is an idiom for a violent death, the shedding of blood. And so it is not talking about, with reference to Christ, that he bled to death on the cross uh, any more than it's talking about the fact that, that uh, Shemai was to uh, bleed to death. It is simply a, an idiom referencing death. Bring his gray, gray hair down to the grave with blood. Now, a lot of people have problems with, um, with capital punishment. And they they have they don't understand it. It hasn't been taught well, and frankly, in many cases, it hasn't been applied well. But we have to start with absolute eternal principles, and then work out their application. In Genesis chapter nine, verse six, in the midst of God's covenant with Noah, God authorizes man to use capital punishment. In the Mosaic Law, it was spelled out in more detail what the conditions were, the need, for example, of two witnesses, the certain kinds of crime, things of that nature. But in the Noahic Covenant, God simply said, whoever sheds man's blood, there we have that same idiom again, simply meaning whoever uh, takes another person's life in murder, By man, his blood shall be shed. He shall uh, forfeit his life. Why? Today we have all kinds of debates about the death penalty, and often it is said, well, the death penalty is a deterrent. And then the other side will come out with studies and say, no, the death penalty is not a deterrent. Well, the Bible doesn't use that argument. The biblical argument is that Every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, every human being has value. Every human being has importance and significance. The other day, I watched our vice president being interviewed by a reporter who asked him a gotcha question and said, would you say black lives matter? The reporter is treating the phrase as if it's some kind of shibboleth, 
uh, to indicate whether or not he's really uh, politically correct or not. Uh, sometimes it's used as some sort of formula, and of course it comes from the name of an organization. And as I was watching him, and it looked, you know, unfortunately, uh, the vice president, um, Mike Pence, had hit, sort of had that deer caught in his headlights look at the, that instant. And I thought, the way this needs to be answered is this. Every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. That means every human being has value, significance, and importance. Every African American has significance and value and importance. Every Caucasian has value and significance and importance. Every Asian has value and significance and importance. There should not be any distinction in the law between those of one race and another because all are in the image and likeness of God. See, you don't have to use the terminology that's going to answer the, the uh, gotcha question. You just change the terminology, change the issue, and throw it back on how the, how the Declaration of Independence talks about the fact that we are all created equal under the law. And that's the way you handle this, and you, you try to change the language and bring it back to a biblical focus. So another thing I want to say about this is that you will have people who object to this for the deterrence reasons, and others will say, well, people make mistakes. There are a lot of people who have a lot of rulers and justices, judges, who have abused this, and they have used this uh, either incorrectly or they have applied it incorrectly or there has been um, mistakes made in the evidence. So we shouldn't do it because people might make a mistake. Well, then we could ask a few questions to think our way through this. Should we not ever get married? Because there are people who make mistakes and end up in a really bad situation. And I know of some people who waited a very, very long time before they got married simply because they knew so many people who had made bad decisions and ended up in a divorce that they did not want to do that, and so they put off getting, getting married for that reason. But that's not legitimate. Uh, we could also say, should we not have children? Because we might be bad parents. Or our children, we might be good parents and our children might turn out to be rebellious and break my heart, and so I don't think we should have children. Uh, another way to ask this is should we just avoid making any decision whatsoever because we might make a bad decision, we might do something wrong, we might, we might fail in the endeavor. And of course the answer to all of these is uh, is that no, we need to make decisions and we need to do the best that we can and we need to make sure that we have evaluated all of the evidence. But we must recognize that God in his omniscience knew from eternity past that there would be hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of really bad decisions where people would be sent to the gallows, they would be stoned to death, they would be executed wrongly for a crime. But God in his omniscience, God in his justice, God in his righteousness knew, pay attention, 
He knew that it was better to delegate the responsibility of capital punishment than to not delegate the responsibility of capital punishment. He knew that many things would be done wrong, but it was better for there to be capital punishment with all of the mistakes that would be made than if there were not capital punishment. Think about that. That line of reasoning applies to some other areas as well that I'll bring out later on. God knew that there would be many mistakes, many abuses, and many people would be unjustly uh, put to death or executed, but God knew that it would be better to authorize it than not to authorize it. However, how we practice it as a nation with decades of appeals and all of the other nonsense that goes with it is wrong. It needs to be handled quickly. It needs to be handled in a manner uh, that is not drawn out over decades. And there needs to be appeals and there needs to be evaluation, but this should all have a time limit on it of a year or two at the very most, and then uh, the person should be executed. This is ridiculous uh, to burden the state with the cost of supporting somebody for decades uh, on death, death row. So the Bible clearly authorizes the death penalty. Now the next group that David has to deal with uh, is Mephibosheth and Ziba. And so this is the situation where we saw earlier in 2 Samuel uh, 16, 1 through 4, where Ziba comes out to David as he is fleeing from Jerusalem. And, and when David asks him, well, where's your, where's your, uh, uh, where's Mephibosheth? Where is your, uh, uh, the one who you serve, the man whom you serve? Where's Mephibosheth, who is a, uh, the crippled son of Jonathan. And Ziba says, oh, well, he, he thinks he's going to have a better deal with Absalom, and so he's staying back in Jerusalem. He's not coming out here. But I'm coming out here, and I've brought these gifts to the king, and I'm going to uh, take care of you. And so Ziba is lying about Mephibosheth. But David doesn't know it, and at the time, we don't know it either. And now we come to where Mephibosheth comes to David as on the, and crosses the Jordan. And we read this account in verse 24. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. I want you to pay attention to the rest of the verse. Mephibosheth isn't talking here. The writer of Scripture is talking here. The author of Second Samuel is telling us, but uh, Mephibosheth is not using this as as an as evidence to the king at all. So he's not coming and saying, "Oh, look at me! I haven't done this and I haven't done that." The author is telling us this as evidence of Mephibosheth's loyalty to David. The reason I say that is there's a lot of debate. You read the commentaries and different people, and some say Mephibosheth was really with Absalom, and others say, no, he wasn't. But we have to carefully read the text. The writer is commenting and says, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, 
nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. Now, he's really gnarly. It's been several weeks, if not a couple of months, and he hasn't had a bath or washed his clothes or washed his hair or trimmed his fingernails or his toenails, and and he probably wasn't a very nice sight, so it was pretty obvious that he hadn't taken care of himself. Now, the fact that he hasn't washed his clothes is very important in the text. And if we go back to Exodus 19.10 and Exodus 19.14, This is a scene where all of Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai. And God is speaking to Moses and giving him instructions on what must take place in four days when the people will come and listen to God give the law and giving the Ten Commandments. And so in Exodus 19.10, we're told that God instructed Moses to go down and tell the people to wash all their clothes and be cleansed and sanctified before they come to listen to God. And then in verse 14, when Moses comes down from the mountain, uh, Scripture says, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. So, what we have here with Mephibosheth is his clothes haven't been washed. He hasn't been washed. He could not have gone to the temple to worship God during this entire time that David has been gone. And so that indicates that that Mephibosheth has truly been grieving for David while David has, has been gone. So that's just sort of a nonverbal evidence that is seen there in the presence of Mephibosheth. So as Mephibosheth approaches David, in verse 25 we read, So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he's asking Mephibosheth to make his case. He's listened to Ziba, And now he's going to listen to Mephibosheth. But this is a somewhat difficult scenario. Now, I want to take you to another scenario. We'll go back to 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. This is a scenario that happens with Solomon, where Solomon is presented with a case that he has to decide, and he's not sure who's telling the truth. David's in the same kind of situation, perhaps, Solomon was taught something from this situation with David, and maybe that's the background for what he does in um, 1 Kings chapter 3. This is the incident where there are two women who are prostitutes who come to Solomon and they stand before him, and the first woman says, well, Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth, she was in the house, and then third day after I gave birth, she also gave birth. So you have these two Uh, pregnant prostitutes in the house, and they both give birth at approximately the same time. And one woman's son dies in the night because she rolls over and suffocates her baby. And in verse 20, uh, this woman who's making the complaint says, so she got up in the middle of the night and she took my son from me and while I was asleep, and then the next morning, and then she put her baby in my arms, and the next morning, uh, she said that uh, 
that, that my baby had died and claimed that this baby was hers. And then the king comes and he has to make a decision. And in verse 23 says, well, one of you says, this is my son uh, who lives and your son is the dead one. The other says, no, it's the other way around. Your son is dead. My son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword to the king. And Solomon said, cut the living boy in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now, Solomon wasn't going to actually do that, but he knew that by making that statement that the one who truly loved the, the baby and that the baby was hers would give, it, give the baby up rather than see the baby die. And that is exactly what happened. The woman whose son was alive spoke to the king because she felt great compassion for her son and said, my Lord, give her the living baby, but please don't have him killed. But the other one said, he will not be mine or yours. Cut him in two. So the king responded, give the living baby to the first woman. Don't kill him. She's his mother. Now we go back to uh, 2 Samuel. You go back and look at this passage, and you have a situation where both uh, um, Ziva and Mephibosheth claim loyalty, uh, claim loyalty to David. And so David's got to make a decision as, about who is really loyal to him and who is not. And so in verse, uh, verse 24, uh, or 29 rather, uh, David says, well, let's quit arguing about this. You and Ziva divide the land. Later, David, uh, Solomon's going to divide the child. Child. So Mephibosheth then says, No, let him take all of it, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. See, he's acting just like the true mother acted. He's saying, Don't divide up the land, that's not going to be good, a good situation, just let him have all of it. And so that again is a second line of evidence that Mephibosheth was truly loyal to David and had not been the traitor that Ziba had uh, accused him of. And so as we look, look at this, we've covered Shimei and his traitorous heart. We have looked at Mephibosheth and Ziba and seen that Mephibosheth is truly loyal to the king and uh, the king has treated them both in grace. And now we look at the next person that is involved, and this is uh, Barzillai the Gileadite. Now, in 2 Samuel 17, 27, we just have a couple of verses that tell us about Barzillai. He's a Gileadite. He, he's really, he is really an Aramean who lives up on the Golan Heights to the uh, east and north of the Sea of Galilee. And he is extremely wealthy. We learn later on that he's 80 years of age. And he doesn't get around so well anymore, but he is very wealthy. And along with uh, two others, he brings uh, food and uh, resources to David and his men when they are at Mahanaim. It happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, 
and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite, these three wealthy men uh, are going to supply the logistical needs of David. And one of the great things that this shows here is that God often uses wealthy people as well as those who aren't so wealthy to supply the uh, great financial needs of some ministries and of some, of some people. When we get to uh, 2 Samuel uh, 19 here with Barzillai, starting in verse, verse 31 and then going down to verse 39, uh, we see Barzillai coming down uh, to, from Rogalim, and he uh, is going to cross the Jordan with the king, and es- he escorts him to the Jordan. But we're told in verse 32, he's a very old man, he's 80 years old, and he had uh, supplied the king with many supplies while he was at Mahanaim. And so David invites him to cross with him in verse 33. Come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. Now this is a great episode of grace because Barzillai has tremendous resources, but he's willing to give generously from his wealth in order to support David. Now, that's important because we see in Barzillai and these other two men, uh, uh, three of the many wealthy men in the Bible that God used in many ways, especially to support his purposes. The Bible is not inherently against wealth. Second Timothy, Paul says that the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. God validates the possession of property and land. We read in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. That is a meaningless commandment if you do not have ownership of property and the right to own property and the right to accumulate property. And the way the inheritance laws were written in in Israel, you did not have you did not have a tax on inheritance. And the reason is that the property would be passed on from generation to generation so that the families and clans could develop wealth and that that wealth could be used ultimately for good to take care of those who were less fortunate. But it was always the responsibility of the people, not the government, to take care of those who had needs. Now, in the Mosaic Law, there was one tithe. There were three different tithes, remember. Uh, the One tithe went to support all of the Levites and the whole operation of the temple. Another tithe went to uh, supply other uh, functions of the government, but there was uh, one tithe, tithe, excuse me, the second one was a tithe that was to support a celebration every year And if you had a big celebration, it indicated God had blessed you. If it wasn't so hot, then uh, God did not bless you. And so that was a a sign that there was some sort of a a problem and maybe you weren't being obedient to God. But there was one tithe that was taken up every third year. Now, that's not going to be a huge amount of money. And that was to support our orphans and widows. So there's a minimal safety net, minimal. Because in the Mosaic Law and all through Scripture, the support of those who were needy first fell to the family 
and second to others in the tribe or the clan. It is the individual responsibility of the people. So when you read Isaiah, you read uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and there are condemnations from God because the poor have not been treated well, it's not a condemnation of the government. It's a condemnation for the people because the people have become so selfish that they are not helping others. They are not being gracious. They are not taking care uh, freely from their own volition and their responsibility. This idea that it is the government's responsibility, this idea that we should have uh, a socialist type of structure where everybody owns everything in common is contrary and antagonistic and anathema to the Bible. Socialism is evil. It has never worked. It will never work. And it is simply a system whereby power is transferred from one group of people to another group of people who have been on the outs. This is what happened in in um, the... Uh, revolution in Russia, in the Bolshevik Revolution, is that you ousted a pretty evil dynasty uh, in terms of the, uh, the Russian rulers and the Tsars, and you replaced it with an even more evil group, Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev and a whole uh, Soviet Russian uh, regime. So they were just motivated by greed, they were motivated by evil, and so they threw out one group of people because everybody was jealous, and we're seeing the same kind of thing today. It is the repetition of history, and this kind of activity needs to be put down very, very quickly, but it is fueled today just like it was in the uh, pre-revolutionary period in Russia by the liberal intelligentsia in academia. If you want to guarantee that your children are going to grow up and act like an atheist, act like a pagan, and buy into liberal ideas, just send them to any state school, send them to any university, send them to A&M, send them to University of Texas, and you will almost 90% of the time guarantee that within six-month studies show they will reject everything that you have taught them from the Bible and every conservative value that you have taught them. That's a failure on the part of the church and the home to really prepare these young people for what they're going to meet. Now, there are exceptions. I understand that. But there are vast numbers of people that I know. I know so many families where the parents have done a wonderful job and they have been uh, godly parents and they have reared their children on the basis of the word of God only to send them off to university and have them reject everything that they have been taught. And I can't tell you, and you're the same way, you can probably make a very long list of the people you know who have children and grandchildren uh, that are uh, that won't even talk to their parents anymore. They won't have anything to do with them, simply because they have rejected the truth and have bought into the pagan lies. And almost in every case, it can be traced back to the way they were brainwashed in a secular school. And let me tell you, just because it's a Christian school doesn't mean it's going to be a whole lot better. I was in a conversation with a faculty member at Liberty University not long ago, and I use Liberty as, as an example like some other Christian schools who would avoid uh, compromising uh, 
with the homosexual LGBTQ movement in order to maintain their uh, accreditation. And he said, oh, no, 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 we have an LGBTQ uh, student group, and we have a pro-Palestinian student group here, and all of these other things. Jerry Falwell is rolling in his grave over all of this. Uh, they've allowed all this, and the reason is is because they started accepting federal dollars uh, some uh, 15, 20 years ago, and once you start becoming dependent on uh, the federal financial pipeline, then you're going to start compromising your values pretty quickly. So this, this is a, a huge problem, that we live in a world today that, has, that is antagonistic to wealth, antagonistic to the order, the divine institutions of Scripture. And so we have to go back to Scripture and realize that, that people like Barzillai are honored and respected because they, they made a tremendous amount of uh, wealth. God blessed them, and they used it richly to support David and to support others. They were very generous and very gracious. And so at the end of the episode with... Uh, with with Barzillai, David says, is returning the favor, because when Barzillai gave him all of these logistical uh, needs to take care of his men, David had nothing. He wasn't even sure that David wasn't going to be killed in Absalom's rebellion. And so Barzillai gave it, not expecting anything in return, and now David is offering much in return to take him with him, to take him to his palace in Jerusalem, and to uh, give him tremendous opportunities, and to eat at his table and all of these other wonderful things. And Barzillai just says, I'm too old for all of that. But I have a servant, Kimham. Uh, that's how it's spelled, actually. In the, I don't know why they transliterated as a C-H. It's a K. Uh, Kimham, and they wanted, he wanted Kimham, who's sort of a protege servant, to go and to experience all of these blessings. And so the king said, well, Kim, in verse 38, Kimham will cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. You just Everything here just uh, overflows with grace and generosity. And that's how we should be as believers. Uh, even to those who have not treated us well, like uh, Shimei and like uh, Ziba, to those who have treated us well, Grace should be extended to all because that's what God does in salvation. He extends his grace to all, to those who are hostile to him as well as those who will respond to him. So next time we'll come back, wrap up the last little bit in this chapter, and then look at this major rebellion that takes place in chapter 20 uh, under Sheba. And there's a few lessons there that you'll notice that are uh, particularly relevant to a lot of the stuff that's going on in our country right now, especially the title rebel, because uh, that is the word Belial, which we have seen in other passages. So he is not called the son of Belial there. He's just called a Belial or a, a rebel. And rebellion is always against the plan of God. Father, we thank you for the fact that we've had this opportunity to study these things and see these uh, illustrations in real life of grace and of kindness, even in the face of those who are in opposition or hostile to David. 
and that we need to have that same kind of quality in our lives as we walk with you. For you are the God of grace. You are the God of love, the God of kindness and generosity even to your enemies. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand how to do that, to be conscious of how to exhibit that level of respect to others who disagree with us, that we can uh, demonstrate that kind of love going the extra mile according to the illustration of the Good Samaritan given by the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we might uh, be challenged by all of these examples in Scripture. In Christ's name, amen.